Welcome to the Six Ways to Sunday podcast, hosted by award-winning television director, documentary filmmaker, author, and speaker, Craig D. Forrest. Join Craig for the next few minutes as he interviews leaders, artists, and creatives about trends and insights shaping our digital world and faith-based media. This podcast is produced and brought to you by Matchstick Media International. Now, here's Craig. Welcome to the podcast today. We have a very special guest. We always have a special guest or we wouldn't be doing the podcast. We have Holly McClure. Welcome to the podcast today. Craig, thank you for having me on. It's my delight to be with you. Super. Um, Holly is a media media personality, 20 years experience in the entertainment industry. I see pictures all the time of her with famous actors and actresses all the time. (laughs) You name a famous actor or actress and Holly has probably interviewed that person or been part of a press junket or whatever it might be. And we're going to ask her a little bit about uh, what it's like to rub, uh, rub elbows, as we say in the English language, with uh, some famous personalities and people. She is uh, a film critic, media consultant, filmographer, film and television producer, an author, and a mother. So that's a whole lot of things going on right there. Absolutely. I am and a grandmother. <laughs> oh, hey, new information has just arrived. She's also a grandmother. Yeah, she, life goes on. <laughs> life goes on. Uh, grandkids are the dividends. That's what I've always heard. And she's that heavily, yep, she's heavily involved in family-friendly entertainment. Done a lot of broadcast TV as well. Uh, so let's talk about that. You know, the we'll talk about the changes in the film industry in a little bit, but I'd like to, I think you as our audience would also like to know, a little bit about Holly and Holly. How did you get started in film and TV? What was what was the genesis? Where where did that start? Well, I had um, been in, and my journalism and art was a major in college. And when I got out, I wanted to always fly for an airline, so I flew for an airline for a few years. Got married, started having kids, and when I had little children, and I lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I um, was noticing that the movies at that time in the late 80s started having the PG-13 and, uh, you know, it was went from PG to PG-13. Well, there was lots of uh, movies that came out that were not appropriate for kids, but yet they had children in them or they were focused on family entertainment, but they had questionable things. So I started writing a column movie review column for a publication in New Mexico. And then shortly after the next year or two, I moved to Southern California and approached the um, Irvine World News at the time and did a family film review for them. And the Orange County Register saw me and picked up my column. And within months, I was syndicated in 365 newspapers. Oh, my goodness. I had a full page where I would do several different movies and talk about what's good for the kids, what's not, you know, here's the good, the bad, you know, here's the review. And really just because I loved movies, I always have all my life. It was a love for film. I just put my own personality into it and it caught on. I was syndicated in papers and then I started approaching other papers about writing for them. Well, they quickly saw my column and got the idea and had their own people do it. So I can say I was one of the first family film critics out there in print before it became popular and before they started, you know, everyone started doing it. But then I shortly after went on radio as well. So at one time I was in print in the Orange County Register for 10 years, I did that. I did family film reviews 
for TBN, for a lot of different um, uh, Parables Network, I do which now, and some other networks, and radio. I was on KKLA Radio, a uh, talk show host for several years on the radio, so combining being a talk show host, I had a Saturday night show, I did in a, a movie reviews and entertainment inter interviews and interviewed music groups and different people. I had a great time. I had a four-hour show on Saturday night, which had not ever been done before. So it was kind of an era where it was fun trying new things, being a part of a new movement. And at that time, then, I got a phone call when I was on KKLA Radio in Los Angeles. I got a phone call from CNN and said, hey, we'd like you to come on and be a conservative commentator. Uh, on our morning show for women. I'm like, okay. So I did that. A few weeks later, Politically Incorrect called and said, hey, we'd like you to be a conservative commentator for Politically Incorrect. Now, so you, I did you, you need to explain to people uh, a, a Politically Incorrect, and it, that is a tough show to be a conservative on, right? It was a tough show. I actually did it over a five-year span, and in fact, I was on one of the last shows because after the Twin Towers were hit, uh, Bill Maher made a horrendous remark uh, about the terrorist and the head of ABC said, that's it. And they cut his show at that time. It was on ABC. Right. And it was a great show. They had four people. Usually there were actors and speakers and artists and different people. And they had one conservative usually and about three liberals or two liberals you know, a kind of in-between person and in the conservative. So I always represented the family values or the Christian perspective or the conservative perspective, depending on what the topics were. And I had a blast. I did it about 20 times, 21 times, um, did the show. And uh, it, it was, yes, it was tough, but it was also a great challenge because it was one of the few shows where you could have a conservative Christian opinion and it was broadcast and widely watched. I wish we had that same kind of format today. Unfortunately, because of all the things that have happened in politics, we don't have many conservatives speaking out today. There's not many people doing that on television, on national television, I sure. should say. Yeah. You know, so and that's how I, at one time in print, on radio and on television, uh, doing different shows for like CNN, ABC, Politically Correct. I, I did Fox, I did, I mean, there was a lot of shows at that time that I was doing. Did you ever feel on, and I have, uh, real time with Bill Maher is what uh, occurred after Politically Incorrect on ABC was canceled. And I have actually been to a taping uh, at CBS in uh, Fairfax District, CBS Television City, uh, for the real time um, one with Bill Maher. He can be tough. Did you ever feel like when you're on Politically Correct, the, uh, the first show, that you were being ganged up on? I did. However, and the reason that I won't go on and wouldn't go on when I was asked to do Real Time with Bill Maher was because it's HBO. He's not censored. It, there's no protection there. It's just mm -hmm. wide open firing squad lining you up and crucifying you if they can. Um, on Politically Incorrect, I felt like there was times where it ganged up and I definitely felt he did, but I stood my ground because... A, I knew they wouldn't let him 
you know, do a lot of cursing. <laughs> I knew that it was a little bit of protection there. You know what I mean? They, they, there was a boundary only so far he could go to. And I, one time he actually overstepped that boundary. We were talking about, is Jesus and God in Hollywood? And I said, well, yes, it, you know, of course, Jesus and God are in Hollywood. They're everywhere. It's not like they're just in certain places and not in other places. And he said, well, what if I don't want your, and he said the F word, God. And it was, he said it really dogmatically and it was very quiet for a few seconds. And I just smiled and looked at him and said, well, you don't have to accept him or take him or believe in him, Bill, but that doesn't mean he's not there. And I got applause. Everyone applauds me. No one applauded on what he said. Everyone applauded what I said. And that's I just, great, you know, that's a, that's a great, that's a great comment, by the way. Thank you. I just like, you don't have to take him. You don't have to believe in him or you don't have to want him, but it doesn't mean he's not there. God is everywhere, whether you want him to or not. And everyone applauded. So I found, and then after I thought, okay, that's the last time I'll be on. Bill was mad at me. That's the last time we walked off the set. And as we're walking back to the green room, he patted me on the back and he went, great job, Holly. And I'm like, really? I thought you were mad at me. He says, no, no, you did a great job. I'm glad you did that. So I really, I realized he did a lot of stuff just to stir things up and to look a certain way. But I also found out afterwards that everyone in the audience was from Christian universities. That particular night, there were Christian universities in the audience. So here he's saying, what if I don't want your F God? And that's why he got no applause. And that's why I did. So it was like, thank you, God. <laughs> he even watched out with the audience. So yeah, there was several different times, but um he is a very disturbed person. He had a father and a mother that were Jewish and Catholic. So he didn't, he grew up with a mixed bag of religion and um, a lot of issues. <laughs> Great conversation with Holly McClure. We'll be back in 32 seconds. This podcast features engaging conversations with leaders, artists, and creatives sharing about current trends and insights shaping our digital world and faith-based media. Today's episode is produced by Matchstick Media International, a nonprofit that's passionate about inspiring both visionary leaders and young creatives to harness the power of media to further the gospel. To learn more, visit us at matchstickmedia.org. Now, back to Craig. Now back to our conversation with Holly McClure. Then I'm going to ask the question uh, that Bill Maher asked, uh, is, is Jesus and God in Hollywood? What would you say to that? You know, I would say absolutely and emphatically yes. And I am, am excited to see uh, people like the Irwin Brothers with Kingdom Studios and, and others taking a step to do quality movies. You know, I can only imagine the film I can only imagine, which broke a lot of ground, of course, you know, and others. Back in the 90s, uh, you didn't even say you were a Christian in Hollywood because if you did, you felt like you weren't going to be very popular and there's going to be backlash. A lot of people didn't admit that they were Christians working on television and movies there. And I knew who they were, but it was kind of that secret society. In fact, we had a group of, you know, uh, the Abe, the, the secret society of conservatives and the right that met in Hollywood at the time. It has since disbanded, but and then in the in 2000 and, and kind of going forward, um, I got a phone call and uh, the phone call said, uh, hi, Holly, Mel Gibson would like to meet with you at his studios. Would you agree to meet with him? And I thought it was a joke. I thought my girlfriend was playing a joke on me. I said, oh, of course I would. And then I realized it was serious. She said, okay, please come to the Icon you know, offices. 
And I went up in August of 2002 and I met with he and Steve McAveedy, his producer. And he basically said, I want to make a small little movie. I don't think it's going to be very popular. I don't think many people are going to want to see it. In fact, no one may see it, but I'm doing this out of obedience to God. And it's called The Passion. And I heard you're a Christian movie critic and you've you know been in Hollywood for a while and you know what's going on. So I wanted your opinion on it. And I said, wow, well, okay, um, what's going to be about? He said, well, it's about the last 12 hours of Christ's life. And, and in his office, he had a big, huge, long meeting table, and the storyboards were laid out on the table. So he said, here's the storyboard. So I went over and looked at the photos and how it was laid, laid out. He said, it's the last 12 hours of Christ's life. It's going to be an Aramaic. I said, really? No subtitles? He goes, no, no subtitles. You won't have to have subtitles because when I show the story and what it is, you'll know. So he said, um, and it's going to be the last 12 hours and it will end at the tomb when he is risen and that's where it'll stop. Hmm. I'm like, wow, okay, well... I mean, I don't know if the Aramaic thing is going to work. He goes, oh, yeah, 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 it'll work. And I said, well, you know, a lot of people are going to see this movie and they're not going to know what the story is. He goes, well, everyone knows what the story is. That's why, you know, I'm doing it. Everyone knows the story. I'm just going to do it in a way that's going to tell it realistically without bad wigs and bad costumes. And I said, yeah, no, there's going to be a lot of people that'll see this. He goes, like, who? I said, well, you know, there's people that are going to want to show this to their audience, like Greg Laurie with Harvest Crusades. He goes, okay, that's great. Who's that? And then I said, okay, well, focus on the family. And he goes, okay, who's that? I named, Craig, I probably named five different big ministries at the time, Rick Warren, and, you know, all these people. He said, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, Holly, I've been in Hollywood for 20 years, and that's been my world. That's why I asked you to come. And I said, well, there's a big world out there, Mel. I know you're Catholic. I know you're devout Catholic. But there's a big audience outside the Catholic audience of Christians and media and entertainment. And uh, there are many who are going to want to see this movie because we haven't had anything like this. I can tell you this is going to be huge. And they laughed, of course, at me and said, oh, Holly thinks this is going to be a big movie. Ha, ha, ha. So he had a, his own money that he put into it, $15 million. So he said, I'm going to be going to Italy, and I'm going to give you a script. I want you to take a look at the script and tell me what you think. And I looked at him. I said, well, you're Mel Gibson. You've directed Braveheart. I mean, you've won Oscars. I don't know what I can contribute. He goes, well, just take a look at it. And he goes, and I'll call you in a couple of weeks from Italy and see what you think. And I said, okay. I said, um, are you going to have anyone shoot an EPK over there? And he goes, nah, I don't think I'm going to need it. No one's going to hear. I said, no. Holly, explain uh, to our audience that may not know what an EPK is. An EPK is, it stands for electronic press kits. And whenever you're watching Entertainment Tonight or some movie show or, you know, um, Access or any of those shows, you'll see them interview celebrities. And behind them, it looks like they'll have a setting or they'll be in a room that's lit up with maybe a backdrop of their movie or they'll be in a hotel room with flowers behind them but you can tell they're set up for the interview that's what they used for the press so an electronic press kit is usually you'll go on set um, do interviews with a primary cast the you know the main people who were the leads and the actors and actresses and also interview the director and maybe a producer who's producing it to get an idea of what the story is about and then when you start doing your press and your media to get people interested in it, then you can use these clips to promote it, you know. And at that time, remember, we weren't doing social media. So it, it was just kind of starting. I mean, you know, it was not, I mean, it, it was just beginning. It wasn't really in its throngs. So there was a lot of 
television commercials, radio commercials. Uh, whenever you see clips from a film, you know, along with some kind of interview, those that's your electronic press kit materials. That's what you use. So I asked him, don't you need that? And he said, no, I don't think I will. And I said, yes, you really will. You'll want to have something. Don't miss this opportunity. And he goes, well, okay, I'll have you come to Italy and, and you can do it. So two weeks later, I got a phone call. Hi, Mel Gibson's on the phone. He would like to speak with you. Sure. Thank you. He goes, Hey, Holly, how are you doing? And I go, fine, Mel. And again, when I met him, he had his, you know, plaid shirt on, uh, boots, you know, jeans, very down to earth, real guy. And I thoroughly enjoyed meeting him and who he was and his passion, literally passion for what he's doing for this project. He said he'd been working on it since we were soldiers and some other films. He'd been working on it for eight years. And he kind of decided when he was doing uh, We Were Soldiers and Signs that he wanted to do this movie. So I, it had been a long time, you know, idea with him. So he said, did you read the script? I said, yes, I did. And he goes, what did you think? I said, well, if you do it just like it is, it's going to be phenomenal. And there are going to be people's lives who are changed and people are going to become believers and want to read the Bible. And it's going to have an amazing effect on people. And he said, but, and I said, well, but you're going to have to use subtitles because people are not going to understand this story. They really aren't. They're, they'll see what's happening with Jesus. They'll see that. I said, but Mel, you have a woman waking up with, we know as Jesus's mother, Mary, you have a woman waking up with her in her home. You have a lot of scenes with this woman. Is she his sister? Is she his girlfriend? Is she a lover? Is she his wife? Who is this woman? And he said, well, everyone knows that's Mary Magdalene. And I said, but they don't, Mel. And if you have it in Aramaic and you don't have it, any subtitles, how will anyone know that story? By looks, by what they're seeing, and if they don't know the story, they'll think it's a girlfriend. They'll think it's something else. And, and he said, well, you're right. And I said, now, I know that this isn't the same Mary Magdalene. It really isn't. But something that's familiar to a lot of people is the story of how the woman who they were going to cast the first stone, everyone knows that story. So if you show that story, he goes, I know, I know. I'll draw a line in the sand and I'll have her reach her hand across and touch the sandal of Jesus. He said, Jim's not here on it. Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus. He said, Jim's not here in Italy right now, but I can put the robe on and I can put the shoes and I've got Monica Bellucci. So I can cut that scene right now and add that. I said, well, that would be great because then at least we know who she is. There's some kind of reference. I said, you don't have any other flashback scenes with her in it he said you're right he goes wow i've been working on this for eight years and i've had a lot of people read this script and no one's ever told me that before i said well how many women have you had read your script and he started laughing really hard <laughs> i said because you know that's the first thing i, I said plus I'm a, I'm a film critic now i'm looking at it from the perspective that no one knows this story so since no one knows this story, are they understanding what you're trying to say? And I said, and there's one more thing. And he goes, what? I said, well, Peter betrayed Christ three times. We know that. And as Christians, we know that after, you know, Jesus rose from the grave and on the beach, he approached Peter and said, do you love me? Do you love me? Three times to Peter. So that three times Peter could say, yes, Lord, you know, I love you. Yes, you know, and basically redeem himself for the three times that he had denied Christ, right? So as Christians, we know that story and there was redemption there. I said, but Mel, you're not telling it beyond the tomb. So it looks like 
Peter's denying Christ. He's saying he doesn't know who he is. So in my opinion, if I don't know the story, I think there are two people who betray Christ, Peter and Judas. And if Peter is the father of the Catholic Church, how is that going to look? He goes, wow, you're right. You're right. Okay. I'll have in the temple. I'll have him look over and give him a look. And, you know, you'll just know. So it was interesting. Those two scenes were added to the movie. And I said, you also need a few more flashback scenes to connect the characters, the history to Christ, because you're assuming everyone knows the history. So he went back. There were several scenes, flashback scenes that were added. And I say this and I tell this story not to say, oh, pat myself on the back because I'm the one who gave me the ideas, blah, blah, blah. It was the Lord who put those to show those to me to give it to Mel. So I really give credit actually to God for that. But I also bring up the point to say that's the kind of director, that's the kind of professional Mel Gibson is, that he would ask someone like me what I thought and actually use my opinion and idea and not be closed-minded because so many people who birth an idea, birth a script, birth a story, birth, you know, directing it, wanting to have hands-on, they won't take anyone else's ideas of what to change or do and a lot of times it's to the detriment of the film because it needed something. So I just thought highly of Mel for doing that. Yeah. And I went to Italy for two months and I got to do the behind the scenes and film everything. And um, I came back and produced a one hour special called The Making of the Passion of the Christ. And we did that. We aired it on TVN and on PAX, a network at the time it was PAX. And um, then I also did a small half hour, The Faith Behind the Passion of the Christ. So it it was when he came back and when he realized how big that movie is going to be and was, I remember opening weekend, I'm like, they said, Holly, how much do you think it's going to bring? And I said, Oh, about 150 million. They laughed at me. Steve and Mel were in the hall laughing at me at Icon. I'm like, I'm telling you guys, it's going to be huge. And did of they, course the did, first, weekend, did they think it was going to be much less? They thought it was going to be bomb. They thought it was going to bomb. They thought no one was going to come see it. They really thought it was going to, they said, maybe we'll do 50, 60, but you know, not 150. I said, oh, it's going to 150 million. I, I'm telling you. They thought I was crazy. And then of course they had to eat those words and I made them. <laughs> I said, you guys thought it wasn't going to do well. You made so much fun of me. They had just, he just had no idea how big the Christian, Christian market and Christian world was. He had people, Muslims, you know, in, 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 the countries where you would never imagine showing that movie. The reason those countries showed the movie because they heard it was about Jews and that they were going to bash Jews. And that's why they showed the film. And then when they showed the film, there was Muslims in there watching it, walking out saying, I want a Bible. Where's this Bible? I want a Bible. I want to know this story. And so many were converted because of that movie showing what they thought was going to be against Jews. And it turned out it wasn't, of course. The Holy Spirit was using that film in ways that Mel Gibson never, ever could have imagined. Never. He, he didn't dream, but he was on set going, uh, this sucks, it's not gonna make it, this isn't good, I, this is gonna fail. I'm like, no, 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 you're doing great, this is doing great. Um, you know, I was trying to encourage him for the time I was there. I was there at the, the day they were filming, filming the whipping scene and they had Jim, you know, spread out on that stone with his hands chained and the guy is whipping him. And of course they had, the special effects guys had put a layer of latex and fake skin on his back. And he was, that, he was covered in that. He had to get up every morning, go in at 3 a.m. and start putting that on for the whole day. 
And then at night he would just get in the shower and just roll it off, literally strip it and roll it off his body. It was fascinating to see what they did with that skin. Well, as he was getting whipped, this, and they had the whips, the actual remakes of the whips that they used in those days. And that cat of nine tails or whatever it was called when the guy whipped him, it actually ripped through that, the um, late, the skin that was on him, the fake covering that was on him and it cut Jim's back. And so he screamed out and Mel was like, that's great. That's great. You know, he's behind the camera sitting here going, that's great. And, and he screamed out again. And then someone said, stop, stop, roll, stop the camera. And of course everyone rushed over and they got the medics over there to look at Jim's back and unchain him and take it off and look at that. And Mel stood there for a few minutes. He went here, Scott, there was a guy that was a special effects. Like, come here, come here. He said, see that? And he said, yeah, he said, that's how it's supposed to look when you get your back whipped. See this? That didn't look that way. Go change it and come back. So he literally changed the special effects because of the way that, you know, because of the way that, that Jim's back looked. You know, I heard a story. Tell me if you heard it as well, that there, when they did the crucifixion scene, Jim Caviezel, who was playing Jesus, uh, was up there, of course. And they had lightning in the area and everyone, you know, just went for cover and they left him up on the cross. Did you, <laughs> did you hear that? They all kind of ran for cover, but they didn't exactly leave him. They no, he, but they had his helpers, you know, got up to help him off. And his one guy that was his assistant, actually he was the um, first AD and he went over to help him and come down after he climbed down and they got him and they were running to safety. And when he and that guy were running to safety, lightning struck Jim and it inadvertently hit that guy too as well. His, no. his assistant. And yes. And he fell to the ground and his wig was all frizzled. And uh, literally he got up after a few minutes, just stunned, but you know, it did, it did knock him down. It could have killed and him. Then, and, then, and it could have killed him. And the next, and the next time they had in the spring, they did some reshoots, and it's it hadn't rained there for like six or seven months. Well, they went to do the reshoots, and that day it rained. And when it rained, sure enough, lightning came, and they had an umbrella over Jim, and sure enough, the lightning hit the umbrella. So he likes to say he was struck by lightning twice while making the Passion of the Christ. But, and that assistant was there with him you know which was funny because i mean they laughed about it later but wow it was you know that was dangerous <laughs> really enjoying this conversation with holly mcclure join us on the next episode we'll learn more you've been listening to the six ways to sunday podcast with craig d forrest brought to you by matchstick media international dedicated to excellence in media through inspiration vision and education to learn more visit us on the web at matchstickmedia.org that's matchstickmedia.org your generous donations large or small help defray costs for producing this creative podcast thanks for listening and subscribing